welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus, and today I am joined by He Win, a protective security practitioner. He is currently the Director of Protective Services at the University of Ottawa in Canada. Previous to his current role, he served for over 13 years with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, where he began his journey as a general duty patrol officer before his time as a personal security officer assigned to the personal protection for the Canadian Prime Minister and the Governor General of Canada. He completed his career with the RCMP, assigned as a national security investigator, where he investigated different national security and terrorism threats to the Canadian people and government. He, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast with us today. Uh, we're going to be talking several things, your time with the RCMP, your time working national security and counterterrorism during a pretty intense time in not just American history, but specifically Canadian history as well. And then we're going to dive into campus security, of which you live and breathe every single day. And we're going to talk about the nuances to that. So again, pleasure to have you on. Can't wait to run downfield with you on these topics. Thanks so much, Ron. That's It's such a, a privilege to talk to you today. I'm uh, super excited to be on your podcast. And as you said, um, Canadians and Americans are absolutely family. Um, my entire time in law enforcement, I've had the privilege of interacting with my American counterparts, and and we're very much trained the same way. We we think the same, and uh, we uh, just between you and I and your listeners, we drink the same. So <laughs> <laughs> funny you bring that up. Uh, I'm originally from the Midwest, uh, the great state of hockey. More specifically, for those who don't know, that's the state of Minnesota, uh, and we share a border with uh, Canada. So uh, we often refer to you guys as our cousins because. Uh, there were people who had family on both sides and a lot of shared values, shared love for the same winter sports, uh, specifically hockey. And uh, if you look at American history and Canadian history, uh, there's a lot of blend. We've been there for each other in shared times of crisis, individual times of crisis, and uh, been able to do a lot of good things together. And with that said, let's go ahead and deep dive into your journey. Uh, not just protective security and security management, of which is a current responsibility of yours, but let's go back to kind of where you got your start in law enforcement with the RCMP. Now, how did you decide on a career in law enforcement? I know you shared some posts about 9-11 and your nexus to that, of which this month we marked the 22nd anniversary of the tragic attack on not just the American public, but really the world as World Trade Center buildings one and two uh, dubbed the Twin Towers, were the most iconic buildings on the complex and stood really as an international economic symbol to the rest of the world. Can you share with our audience how this attack impacted your decision to embark on law enforcement and how that led you to a protective security journey in response? Yeah, absolutely. So just like you said, everybody remembers 9-11. It was shocking to everybody. And you know, just like we said, we are family, Canadians and Americans. And so when the New Yorkers got hit, uh, I was in Montreal at the time, and Montreal is only a few hours away 
by by flight or you know i think it's 5 6 hour drive from montreal so i was a salesman at the time didn't have any exposure to policing or or you know law enforcement by any means really the only the closest thing i have to understanding what life in uniform is is my my father is vietnamese and he was in the vietnam war so he's a, a vietnam war veteran so that's as close as i got to uniform really in uh, in my life and um uh when the attack occurred uh i was shocked i was just absolutely shocked and you know there was something greater that pushed me you know some some calling a higher higher calling if you want that just said you know this now is the time to get off the sidelines. And um, so I decided to, to apply. So a few weeks after 9-11 is when I walked into a recruiting office in Montreal for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, so the RCMP. And so for the listeners who don't know what the RCMP is, um, in short, it's the National Police Force of Canada. And it has different mandates. Uh, but on the counterterrorism portfolio, if you will, it's a rough equivalent of your FBI. So it's a federal body that deals with counterterrorism, essentially. But in Canada, so you have three levels of government. You have municipalities, you have provinces, and then you have the federal government. So the RCMP is the only police force in Canada, which actually covers all three levels. So they can be hired on a contract basis by, say, the municipality of, uh, let's say, Vancouver. And Vancouver could potentially hire the RCMP to be their police force. They're not currently, but let's say they, they could do that. There's a lot of provinces who, for some reason or other, usually it's a financial reason, they don't have enough money to have their own police force. So in, it, it would be the equivalent of a state police in your, in your case. So in Canada, there's some provinces that will hire the RCMP and the RCMP will police the entire province. And then, of course, they do all of the federal policing. So it touches on anti-money laundering, fraud, counterterrorism, large international cross-border drug files, that type of stuff. So yeah, so just to kind of get back to the story, essentially, I walked into this uh, recruiting office and there was the grizzled old sergeant. You know, that's walking in front of the the crowd. We, We must have been like 40 or 50 people stacked in this small room. And he's just, he was just going on about, you know, statistically, maybe one of you will graduate from the academy if you're good enough and that type of stuff. And, and from that moment, I was totally sold. I was like, yes, this is absolutely for me. So, and honestly, because I had no background, because I, I didn't have a background as a, I don't know, a security guard or anything like that. I was like, I'll never get hired. But you know what? I got hired. And so two years later, um, I was off to the academy. And um, it's, uh, I guess, a little bit of a mix between your types of police academies and the FBI academy. So we have, uh, you, you spent six months in Saskatchewan. And it's, it's almost like a paramilitary base. And you're on there, and they take you from being nobody to becoming a Mountie. So 
you don't need to know anything about policing, but you know, you're there for six months and you're doing it seven days a week, all day long. So you drive like you stole it, you fight for your life, you shoot, 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 and then you do lots of class time as well. Um, you know, learning about law, learning about how to investigate, how to in, uh, conduct investigations, how to interrogate suspects and all that jazz. So it's six very intense months. And you, just like in the army, you polish boots all day long. So there's a lot of discipline inside this training. And um, and yeah, so I graduated in, in 2003. And I got posted in the lower mainland of Vancouver. So in that area of Canada, that type of policing is is municipal policing. And it, interestingly enough, it's very much compared to LA type policing, where it's call to call to call to call, lots of gun calls and, and domestic assaults and stabbings and you know shots fired, that type of stuff. So very high adrenaline. And uh, I, I totally got the bug. So this is where I learned the ropes of being a, a street cop. Uh, did lots of drug busts and kicking in doors and getting into bar fights and all that jazz. High-speed pursuits when they were allowed because they're no longer allowed. But back in the day where we could chase bad guys, we did. And so um, I did that for four years. And um, and then an opportunity came up, essentially, um, for me to transfer east of Canada. So Vancouver is completely on the West Coast. And my family, everybody was on the East Coast. So my wife and I at that time had our first daughter. So, you know, here was an opportunity to transfer and get the kids to know their cousins and their aunts and uncles and grandpa and grandma and all that jazz. So we we jumped on the opportunity and we we transferred. So uh, I transferred to Ottawa and I was transferred to the uh, Prime Minister's Protective Detail. So this is exactly the same job uh, as the U.S. Secret Service. We're, uh, in fact, we train with the U.S. Secret Service. So we're, we're pretty much trained to just about the same standards. The, the weapons are a little bit different, uh, but at the end of the day, the basic practices are exactly the same. And we actually work together quite a bit because there's a lot, a lot of U.S. dignitaries that travel to Canada. And so the RCMP will be part of the protective team and they work hand in hand with the, the U.S. protective team. And same for Canadian um, heads of state that travel uh, to the U.S. So uh, we... Uh, work hand in hand and work very well. So that was um, that was a, a really interesting part of my career in the sense that lots of training um, and lots of traveling. So I was um, I had the opportunity really to travel all over the world. So I, I traveled to the US, but I traveled to Asia and Africa and all over the place where either the prime minister was attending events or the governor general of Canada attending events. So you know, memorable trips were, you know, going to China for three weeks and and working with uh, our Chinese counterparts out there, but just seeing how differently um, the various countries do security. So for example, in the US and Canada, we create a box around the protectees. So let's say we're protecting you, Ron, then we'll have guys and gals with guns all around you, making sure that nobody kind of breaches this bubble um, and you can walk around and this bubble kind of walks around with you. In China, they do it completely differently. There is no bubble because what they do is they remove everybody. 
So there is, there is no one. So in China, I mean, there's a lot of people like crowds, like you can't imagine it's, it's, it's like walking around a rock concert all the time. And a good example is at some point we're protecting the governor general and she visits these uh, historical sites and we end up going to the great wall of China and on the great wall of China at any given time, because it's a huge tourist site at any given time in this section of the wall that we were supposed to walk on, there's 50,000 tourists on that section of the wall at any given time. Well, just before we showed up, they literally kicked off 50,000 people. They just kicked them off the wall. And so I have pictures of myself literally by myself walking on the Great Wall of China. And in the background, like probably half a mile down, like way in the back of the picture, you see 50,000 people just standing there waiting to get back on. So they'll just kick everybody off and you can walk and there's no issue because there's there's nobody around. And they actually did the same thing for the um, the Forbidden City. So the Forbidden City is this huge fortress. It's a giant fortress. Again, I think there, there was like 40,000 people in there. They just emptied the entire fortress. And then we just walked the whole thing by ourselves. It's just mind-boggling. So so yeah, so my time in, in protection, like in protective services as a bodyguard was super interesting for these international um, trips and that, that just showed us so many, so many cool things. So yeah, that was, that was very cool. And, you know, my passion for national security and catching terrorists was um, never faded because that was the main reason why I joined in the first place, because I was thinking, you know, I'm not going to let that happen again. And I don't want this to happen in Canada for sure. So from the time I was in uniform, one of the first things I started doing was recruiting sources because I knew that going into counterterrorism, I needed to know and I need to be good at handling sources, handling uh, agents. So in Canada, I, I'm not sure the definition in the US, but in Canada, there's kind of two definitions. So if you have a source, a confidential source, it's somebody that gives you information, gives information to the police, and you can use it to obtain warrants and, and make arrests, that type of stuff. And agents is a little bit different because agents are people that will actually take actions on your behalf. So they might introduce an undercover agent into a play, or uh, you know they may make a purchase or drive you someplace or introduce you to somebody and, and so on. So there's two very distinct roles here. And, and so I wanted to make sure that I was really, really good at that stuff. So I started way back at, you know, at the beginning of my career. So in, um, in 2011 is when I got the opportunity uh, and just the, an awesome, awesome opportunity to join one of the best teams um, in my area in counterterrorism. And so it was very, very cool. It was as James Bond as it gets. So, uh, how can I describe this? Um, you know, lots of undercover work. So I, I went and got my undercover operator certification, uh, which is a super difficult course to, to, to graduate from. But once, once you're qualified as a UC, um, wow. Uh, yeah, you get to do some pretty awesome stuff. No, and I bet you guys are out there doing God's work. Yep. 
Um, for those of us who are unfamiliar with the RCMP pipelines, would you say it was more difficult to get through the national security one or the protective security uh, pipeline? Oh, the, yeah, national security by far, by far. Yeah, because protection um, is, you know, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest, protection is not hard. It's just, you just need to be patient um, because most of the time, especially in Canada, right? You have to consider the Canadian kind of perspective here. There's very little threats in our country. You know, there's almost no guns. Uh, and, and, you know, once in a while, somebody throws a, a pie, <laughs> you know, it's, it's so that the threat level is very low. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not super hard to get on, onto the team um, and, once you are on the team, you get to travel lots and, and do lots of cool stuff, but you're not seeing any action whatsoever. I mean, you walk around, you drive around, you, you, you learn how to do things like, you know, motorcading and that type of stuff, which is, which is fun. But um, at the end of the day, you rarely, rarely face any kind of significant threat. So, so yeah, but, but in national security, it's, it's a whole other level of investigation. Because in Canada, because I'm not, I'm not sure how it works in the U.S. specifically, but in Canada, what happens is you're investigating a crime that, that hasn't happened yet, right? So you're, you're investigating a group of guys who are planning to bomb something or a group of guys who are planning to kill a bunch of military people, you know? So it's, um, it, they're very hard to investigate because generally police officers, we show up after the crime's committed. And so you gather the evidence on that, and then you take them to court, and then they go to jail. But in this case, you're there to prevent the crime from happening in the first place. So your your burden of proof is completely different. Um, and under the Criminal Code of Canada, we have different powers. So a good example of this is when you obtain warrants. So to obtain an interception warrant. So, right to intercept, if I want to start intercepting your phone calls, for example, in Canada, I have to demonstrate to a judge that I've done everything in my power to do to obtain evidence every other way possible before I can intercept your conversation. But in national security, I can start with an interception. Right, because they understand that it's a completely different standard, a completely different crime. So, uh, so yeah, so it's um, these investigations uh, in national security were pretty awesome uh, because we we were able to do things that were uh, very very cool. You know, just you know, you, you, it's it's a mix between being a spy and being a cop, which is which was really really fun, and we were able to do things. Uh, uh, that had never ever been done anywhere in the world, actually. So uh, we're the only counter-terrorist team um, on record to have. Uh, we actually lured a, um, a a terrorist from Africa to actually come to Canada, and then we arrested him once he landed in Canada. So there was a, a famous Canadian journalist who was kidnapped in Africa at some point. Um, her name was. Um, Amanda Lindhout, and her, uh, she actually published a book. I think it's a house in the sky on her ordeal out there uh, in Africa and, and all the terrible t things that were done to her while she was in captivity. But um, we we did a huge 
undercover play that lasted a couple of years, but we were able to convince one of the kidnappers to get on a plane uh, and actually fly to Canada. And we got him into this huge undercover play. um, And in this undercover play, he actually admits to being part of the kidnapping group and the whole shebang. And yeah. And once, once we had his confession three times in a row, we, uh, we brought in the uniforms and they arrested him and uh, he's to this day, he's still in jail. And, uh, and yeah. And so we, we had some major, major um, undercover files. We, we ran some major counterterrorism files as well. Um, And there were so many um, connections with our American colleagues, right? So, um, at times, we shared information, and we actually sent very critical information to our uh, to your, I want to say, three-letter agencies um, who um, actually took action. So, on one occasion, uh, I'm not going to go into the details exactly, but on one occasion, I had a, uh, I was operating a um, a source that was uh, very, very active in the Middle East, and we ended up, uh, I ended up actually with key information on some um uh some americans that were that were captive uh in the middle east and and we were able to pass that on to americans and i'm sure the boys got sent out someplace and some some people got saved so that was that was pretty cool but uh yeah no uh my, my time in in counterterrorism was just uh phenomenal as well well, you, you certainly had an incredible career. Uh, you did a lot of good, both domestically in Canada and across the world. Um, and specific to the book, A House in the Sky, um, as I sat here listening to you, I've got it now. Coming to the house uh, via Amazon, and uh, I've actually put the Audible version into my wish list. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to actually give that a listen because Amanda actually narrates the book uh herself so it'll be interesting to to listen to the words she put on the paper and uh hear it from her directly when you open that book okay inside that book like the first just on on the first page is the printout of her journal that she was writing while in captivity so she was writing this like on on stolen paper or toilet paper and she was hiding it right so there's a there's a copy of this in the book what you're seeing is actually us we've recovered that from the terrorist that we got so what you're seeing in the book is actually what we got like it's uh it's that's our work yeah yeah well well i appreciate you sharing that with us Uh, certainly that's such a I don't think cool is the right word, but it's such a unique and special aspect of that story uh, with you guys having such a direct connection to her freedom uh, from capture. Um, but I want to go back a little bit. I know I talked about 9-11 earlier, um, but um, if you could expand just even more on what the impact was, not just for yourself, but for your fellow Canadians, you know, and, and uh, how that event impacted them. And, uh, yep. you know, because I think that's a story that we don't hear often a lot about. Yeah. Um, well, as mentioned before, I think that regardless of our <laughs> local politics, I think we we all feel very much like we're all the same family, right? And so you, Ron, are my close cousin, and some somebody punches you in the face, I'm gonna be upset and I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna wanna do something about it. And I'm you know, I think that's um 
that's something that's always stayed with me is on 9-11, you know, all of our first responders, everybody started volunteering to head down to New York because we're a drive away, right? And so, I mean, thousands volunteered to head down, head south to go help, to go assist and so on. And on the day of the attack, I don't know if you you may have heard about this, but uh, hundreds of planes got diverted to Canada uh, and uh, they, they got diverted to, a lot of them got diverted to Gander, Newfoundland. And if you don't know where that is, that's like super remote. It is a tiny little airport in a tiny little, it's barely a city. But Newfoundlanders are renowned for being the warmest, more, most uh, loving, lovely people <laughs> imaginable. They're so warm. And they, um, these people open their doors. like They were literally hosting people in their houses um, because that the airport was just overflowing with Americans. And so all these Canadians just opened their doors wide open because they knew what was happening. And uh, all these Americans got to stay for like three or four days in Newfoundland and just in these people's houses. Um, and that's what a tribute to, you know, the, um, I'm going to say the, the brotherhood or sisterhood, like the family connection that there are between Americans and Canadians. That's, um, I mean, I, I can't imagine a, a, a more a generous offer than to open your your home to strangers, you know, and in need. So yeah, I know that's, uh, to, so I, I think in the end, Canadians were there 100% once, once the, the, you know, you guys got hit. Um, and, and there was no backing down. I know, I know the Canadian army, the Canadian forces, went out with you guys to Afghanistan and Iraq and all over the place. And, and they've been, you know, fighting side by side with American forces for the better part of the past 20 years now. And, you know, they, they just got out with you guys recently. So, yeah, you know, it's incredible when you think about it. Um, you know, you and I were alive uh, and remember 9-11, um, but a significant portion of uh, the warfighters in Afghanistan from both the U.S. and uh, Canada that was still left in Afghanistan during the withdrawal, um, there were a bunch of kids there who were too young to either remember or weren't even born during the attacks. Um, And I think that says something about, you know, the military members uh, that serve around the world uh, on our behalf to keep us safe. Um, It's an incredible thing that these uh, men and women do. Oh, for sure. Yep. But back to you. Um... You know, you're at the height of your career. You're in an incredible unit. Um, when and how did you make that decision that it was time to move on from law enforcement? Um, did you take time on the front end to kind of think about it? Or was it rather abrupt um, when it kind of hit you? Was there an event that kind of uh, catapulted you into another direction? Um, you know, you know, just as much as I do. Uh, the transition from law enforcement to the private sector um, is just so varied from person to person that it it really is a personal story. And uh, I'd love to give you the opportunity to share yours in this moment. Yeah. Um, Well, I think there's many components that kind of pushed me in that direction. But I want to say that um, at the time in national security, we we were investigating a massive, massive file at the time, the, the biggest counterterrorism file in Canadian history, which was uh, a group of uh, supporters that were uh, supporting ISIS um, in, um, in Syria. 
And so uh, it was a massive, massive file. And so if you look up, uh, if you Google Project Servant, that's actually the work of, of my team. So we worked two and a half years and we worked unbelievable hours on, on that file. And we were honestly pretty burnt out. And for anybody listening who is a police officer, there's a difference between police burnout and any other burnout. I'll tell you that much. When you're burnt out as a cop, you are burnt to a crisp. And so we were really, really exhausted. And right at the end of, of this this investigation, what happened was we had kind of our Canadian version of our 9-11. So there was the attack on Parliament Hill. So we had a lone gunman attack Parliament Hill, actually he shot and killed a soldier that was at a monument um, and uh, just raced into Parliament. And there was a big gunfight in parliament and he ended up uh getting killed in inside the canadian parliament and that of course spun up the most massive investigation in our country's history so but we were just ramping down from this thing and then boom there's the attack and i'll always remember that day just like 9-11 i'll always remember that day where i was actually out doing a uc job and so no radio no, you know, we're completely disconnected from what's happening. And as we're walking into the office, there's people running all over the place. There's, I could see like the big boss of counterterrorism, like running past me with those portable radio systems, those like command posts, you know, Pelican cases. And he's just running past me. And one of the girls in the office just looks at me and goes like, where the fuck were you guys? And I'm like, uh, well, we're out doing a job and she's like fuck and there's these screens tv screens that were tuned to the local news channels in our office and all i can see on all the screens is you know active shooter on parliament hill and my blood just froze i just went like holy crap this is real and so we're just like gearing up getting all the guns and like oh my gosh and and you know and it felt real like just jumping in the car and heading out to Parliament Hill to to engage that, that threat. And yeah, so it was it was a crazy, crazy day. But that spun up this giant investigation. So because we were the hotshot team, if you will, of the time, locally, like we were right there. So obviously we got tagged with that file. And I personally was assigned the unenvious job of being the um exhibit custodian for that file so in 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 our environment that's that means i was in charge of collecting and logging and cataloging every piece of evidence that was seized we had three crime scenes for that attack and so we had like 10,000 exhibits or something it was something insane and i had never had to handle that many like I probably had to handle six exhibits <laughs> per file that I, in my entire career. Now it was in the thousands and it was, yeah, it got pretty crazy. So what pushed me out eventually is I was completely burnt out. Uh, I, I was looking for something different. I, I needed a break. And so um, one of the things that was always spinning in my mind is I have an entrepreneurial side to me. And I was like, ah, oh, man, you know, I wish I could run my own business. And being really um, naive, thinking that 
going into business for myself would be relaxing, quote unquote. Well, that that was a mistake. But um, but yeah, so you know what? I I put in my papers uh, after some reflection. I put in my papers and I was like, you know what? I had joined the RCMP to catch terrorists, and that's exactly what I did after you know 14 years of of running and gunning for you know nonstop and really working super hard. And so I was like, you know what? It feels like I'm at the end of this journey, and I want to try something else. So I just left. I left and I started my own business. And then after running my business for a while, uh, I sold that business and I just, I was, I'm still so passionate about security and policing and all that jazz because it never really leaves you, I don't think. Um, And, um, and so, yeah, so I I decided to look on the corporate side and I got into the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation literally because of, of the good old network, right? We, we know guys, you know guys, we know guys and gals. He works there, she works here. And somebody at a barbecue, you know, having beers, somebody said, Hey, did you know he's looking for a job? And this guy is like, Oh, yeah, I'm looking for an investigator. And boom, there we go. So, uh, so I, I got in there. And uh, again, I'd been in there for a while, uh, a little, not a long time, but uh, at some point, the position of director. Of protection services at, at the university opened up, and again, I had I wasn't really looking for a job, but then this and a guy in my network, still a cop, this guy is just like, "Hey, man, that'd be perfect for you. You should apply." And I'm like, mm, "All right." So I kind of looked into it and uh, not expecting to get it, and then I applied, and then I got it. So yeah, it's been uh, it's been awesome, and you know, uh, campus security is a whole different ballgame. <laughs> that it is. And uh, before we get into it, um, you are mm-hmm. the living embodiment of the phrase "your network is your net worth," <laughs> and uh, I think you've proven that with your transition. Yes, and uh, like you said, yeah. conversations at the barbecue led to one of your positions. And then again, uh, another contact of yours, another network member uh, spurred on this opportunity that you have now at the University of Ottawa. And uh, with that, I think it's about time we dive in and uh, get talking about campus security, what you guys are doing over at the University of Ottawa, and uh, just really your vantage point as a director of protective services in a university environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, very different. It's a, uh, it's a very interesting challenge um, because it's universities, for one, are very political environments. So, just to make an analogy, imagine that a university campus is like a small city, right? The campus that I'm currently working in has fifty-two thousand people on it. So, it is like a small city. It's got its own, you know, sewer and water department. It's got its own electricians and plumbers and it's got staff it's got you know every imaginable level that a uh, a city would have it's got its own council and all that jazz and the security department or the protection department on a campus is like the police station in the city so i would be kind of the police chief of this small city um <clears throat> so obviously there's a lot of politics involved, right? What does the mayor want? In this case, the president of the university. What do they want? What do the professors want? You know, what do the, the student community want? And so on and so forth. And typically, um, university environments are very liberal, very, very liberal, right? 
So imagine <laughs> Seattle on steroids. Like it's very liberal. So I, I, I can only imagine. Um, and, and my question to you yes. um, yeah. is in that environment where you have maybe professional staff or you have university faculty members um, who are skittish on security, if not directly opposed to the mission that you are there to do, how do you get that buy-in? How does that impact your team? And uh, how do you kind of work yep. around it, if not directly through it in those environments yep. to still be successful? So so essentially, when you're doing um, campus security, you're always, always balancing uh, applying the law, making arrests, that type of stuff. Because just like in any other small city, our our team, for example, we respond to forty thousand calls a year. It's busy, like it's it's go 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 all the time. Uh, we have a small team. However, every time you're going to do an arrest, every time you, especially if you have to go hands on with anybody, you have to be super careful how it's done and. Your frontline officers need to be very cognizant of reputational impact, not just to themselves, but to the whole organization. Because the second they arrive on scene, the second a uniform arrives anywhere, people whip out their cell phones and it's live. It's live on social media and the organization itself wants to avoid any negative exposure at any time, right? So a lot of the time when somebody's problematic, it's a lot of negotiating. It's a lot of, you know, let's have a conversation with this person. Let's walk them off campus. Let's finding these these types of solutions. Um, and of course, uh, we're, we're dealing with lots of issues around mental health, right? Um, especially post-COVID, lots of students coming out of high schools who have spent most of their high school days, years, locked down in COVID. Now they end up in these giant campuses and, and they're lost and they're depressed and, and all of that jazz. So we are dealing with a very significant um, aftermath of the COVID pandemic. So that's an added layer. So I, I want to say that a lot of you know the challenges that I'm facing right now in, with campus security, for example, is everything related to training your staff you need to you continuously train your your folks on mental health on de-escalation and all all of that fun stuff to make sure that they're well equipped because there's a huge difference you can't just whip out your cuffs and and get in a scrog with somebody you need to be very good at, at de-escalating and talking things through um, because it's a super sensitive environment. So when you're doing campus security, more often than not, you're always on thin ice, right? And so you have to be, be very careful. The other uh, interesting challenge uh, with campus security, which is unique, I, I'm going to say to campus security, is that most people forget that university campuses are also research facilities. So super high speed stuff is being researched in, in, in university labs, right? They've got time machines and stuff in there. Like it's, it's pretty crazy stuff. They've got some really high end stuff, uh, radioactive material, uh, that type of stuff. So you're also mandated to protect these level five facilities, which is, it's a completely different skill set, right? Because we're, we're talking about making sure you're protecting from 
foreign interference, right? Spies that will come in and try to steal the technology, the research, that type of stuff. We're talking about cybersecurity. We're talking about very high-end, secure facilities. Um, and how do you document and track nuclear material, that type of stuff? So it, that's a whole skill set I had to learn because those are things that need to be protected from a national security standpoint, all the way to like a just just burglars, right? Somebody who wants to just kick the door in and steal the fancy machine, whatever it is, right? So there's that whole aspect of campus security that's completely different. That's been really interesting to, to kind of to, to experience in that sense as well. You have such a unique, you know, shakeholder ecosystem, to put it that way. You know, you're, you're not just, like you said, a college campus where there's students running around uh, trying to obtain degrees where you have, you know, perhaps sporting events that are going on as well, extracurriculars where people are coming in, you're having to manage, you know, traditional crowd management from a protection perspective. But like you said, you have these research facilities and, and you've pretty much smashed together school security with, you know, having like a Livermore research facility all together. And you've got all these different things. And now you've got a team under you that also has to navigate, like you said, a thin ice environment um, because of, you know, the uh, the kind of trajectory that campuses have gone into. And how have you been able to still be effective in all of this? I mean, this is, you have quite a lot on your plate. Um, how have you and your team still had a positive effect, still been able to effectively manage security at this, you know, I don't know, campus? It was really more of a community, um, just a, a mini city, so to speak, um, and, and still get buy-in that's been positive from the other aspects, the other stakeholders that you have, whether it's, you know, the president of the uh, the university, which... I don't know, is supportive of security, is not supportive. You run into, in these campus environments, all types of different people. So how do you have those conversations with people maybe that are supportive but skeptical in some of the things that you need to do from a you know, a leading practice perspective? Can you, can you lend kind of how you've been able to navigate that space more specifically? Yeah, 100%. One of the main elements to succeeding at this has been uh, team culture. You need to be a really, really strong believer in team culture. So, you know, when I arrived uh, in that position two years ago, uh, the team was in rough shape, I'll be honest. Uh, and, and I put so much energy in rebuilding the team and, and really bringing around a culture of excellence and bringing standards up. Um, and it's about feeling valued. I feel like a lot of a lot of time people in policing and security that type of stuff they don't feel valued by the community they live in right and or they work in and so it was bringing that feeling back and and creating trust lots and lots and lots of trust and the the main thrust I think through all of this was um, having a clear mission because it is complicated what we do. It is very complicated. Um, and if nobody was clear on what our mission was, then it's very hard for the teams at the, you know, the frontline teams to know, well, should I be patrolling here or should I be patrolling there? Should I be talking to this person or that person or whatever that is, right? And what kind of service am I delivering? But just taking it back to the basics with my team and just saying, okay, guys, here's our mission. Here's 
what our goal is. And I'm not going to tell you how to do it because you guys are professionals, but now you have a clear idea of where we're going, right? And so I really worked super hard on clarifying the mission with the team. Like I didn't do it by myself. I, I really worked with the team to clarify the mission. And then once we had that really, really clear, I let my frontline leaders determine how they were going to meet that mission, right? And I was there to help them and to provide the resources that they needed to do that. But um, clarifying the mission was a huge, huge, huge step. Creating a lot of trust on the team was, it required so much work, but it, it paid off in the end. Like it's, it's, it's a long-term, like it's a marathon effort, um, but it worked in the end. And one of the things that needed to happen um, and that's with any form of policing or security is you need to build your credibility with whoever's employing you. So if you're working for a municipality for the county or the city of Los Angeles, then LAPD needs to have a credibility with the management of Los Angeles, for example. Um, and, and so for me, uh, the pivotal point, what happened was there, uh, you may have heard this in the news, but there was the the trucker protests in Ottawa. So they locked down the whole city. It was uh, an anti-vaccination, uh, anti-mask protest that locked down the city for a month. Um, and that the whole site of the protests was, I'm, I'm going to say, probably less than a thousand feet from our campus. So so it was right close, like it's a three, four minute walk and uh, from our campus. So um, we managed that crisis really, really well. And in the end, that bought us a ton of credibility. And so from that point forward, when we started uh, or I started making recommendations for security or, you know, saying, mm, we should probably consider this rather than that, then I had the ear of the university management because I had built my credibility on that incident. But I would say that regardless, you don't need a big crisis to build your credibility. But I think that it's that building of trust and credibility upwards in, in your chain of command and downwards in your chain of command. And it doesn't matter um, where you are in your career, whether you're a director like I am, or you're a, a patrol officer, whatever, you need to have build trust and credibility up and down your chain, um, and it's uh, it's it's absolutely vital. And in our our case, you know, on campus, um, that's how we we meet our mission. And and today, even today, like this day today, I've, I'm handling um, crises on our on our campus, and people trust me. They trust what I say because I have kind of a record now, a track record of making decisions that they know is going to protect them in the end, right? So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of how we uh, we do it. No, that's incredible. And and uh, listening to you and, and hearing, you know, your lens on teamwork and community amongst your 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 own entity here, and then extrapolating that out to the rest of the University of Ottawa. It's it's no wonder you awarded, you know, recently awarded Canadian Securities Community Leader Award. You know, and and uh, I I personally think of law enforcement, security management, protective security as as the greatest team sport. You know, and for those of us who have played sports, and I mean, you look at the legendary Herb Brooks, and he took a team all the way through the Olympics, and uh, by building a team, and uh, you know, you see some of the best teams operate, and it's really because those in charge have built a team environment. 
and they take care of the their community as a whole. Um, so it's interesting perspective um, coming from you in a campus environment. And again, being able to look at it more as such a community and uh, getting buy-in not just from the people that work for you, below you, but also that credibility from above you, realizing that you know, you're know you going to have to make policy decisions um, and recommendations that if not followed are going to have huge implications. But you're not always the decision maker in that in that you know chain of command um but then you also have to sell those decisions down to the people who are going to be implementing them as well and it sounds like you've done a fantastic job doing that at the university of ottawa um through some internal crisis through some external crisis that were having an impact on on your team and, and your community as well so i think it's it's incredibly interesting and i think you really come at it with the an important lens of perspective um, of thinking of your your team you know, in that environment. Um, you certainly can't do this job by yourself, right? <laughs> it's just, there's too much you, out you, there. You, you couldn't be more right. Uh, it is absolutely a hundred percent a team effort all the time. It's just, it's a team sport. And that's actually something I use with my team all the time. You know, it's, it's absolutely a team sport and you, you have to collaborate and it's not just within the organization, right. Or within our own protection team, but you know, you have to team up with, uh, with the uh, the facilities people and the electricians and the plumbers and the teachers and the and the community because that's how you win you know it's uh, it's it, there's a big big part of our role whether we're police officers we're security guards we're you know corporate security professionals whatever um, our, a big part of our role is to make our clients understand that we are all responsible for our safety our security as as a community. It can't be one person's job to make everybody else safe. Everybody needs to be safe, um, and 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 everybody needs to participate in that effort, uh, or else it just doesn't work. That's very very good advice. Um, and on the topic of advice, for our listening audience, for any individuals that you know may currently uh, either be actively seeking positions in campus security or a similar security management role. Um, what advice do you give to those individuals? What pedigrees do they need to have? What if they are coming from a law enforcement or military background? Mm-hmm. What are some things that maybe they're not thinking of that are strengths or things that they need to elevate and communicate to that hiring board um, that really would set them apart? I get that question so often. Uh, the, the, my first advice to anybody who reaches out to me to say, hey, you know, I, I want to transition out that type of stuff from the military or the police. My first advice always is start networking. Yep. Right. Start knocking on doors. Start talking to people. If you're on LinkedIn, for example, reach out to people. People love talking to other people. And I mean, we're a brotherhood of cops. Like, yes, we'll talk to like if some cop from Australia reaches out, of course, I want to chat with him. Like, it's just, you know, so uh, reach out, reach out to people, reach out to me. Like, I'll talk to you. Um, but build your network. That's that's the first thing you need because most of us, when we we grow up inside a, a police organization, it's like a bubble. It's a you're you're inside like a, a very small ecosystem, and you've built your support system inside that bubble. But as soon as you step out, you've got nothing. So before you step out, start building your network outside because it really is going to help you. That's that's super, super important. And you need to understand that there's this giant network of former cops and former military out there in the industry, and we all help each other. 
all the time. We're all connected and we send each other business and and we send each other opportunities and stuff like that. So connect, reach out, connect to people. The other advice I always give to, to everybody who reaches out is learn to sell the fact that you can solve this organization's problem. Nobody cares that you were a sergeant in drug section and you bagged, you know, the biggest drug dealer in whatever. Nobody cares. No, nobody does. Like you, 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 uh, you were able to seize sixteen million dollars. Good for you. Nobody cares because every organization in the private sector, when they hire somebody, they hire somebody because they've got a problem, right? I've got a problem with my security team. I need somebody who can come and get my team straightened out and performing like we need. So. What does that mean to you? So as the candidate, you know, you need to be able to sell the fact that, yes, I have experience running a team. Yes, I have experience, you know, with teams that have maybe performance issues. Maybe you have experience dealing with unionized employees, that type of stuff, right? So you need to be able to speak to the employer, the organization and say, here's how I'm going to fix your problem. Because a lot of cops, and I did the same mistake when I got out, is just, you know, you just show up and you're like, yeah, I was corporal here. I was, you know, sergeant there. And, you know, I did all this UC stuff. It means nothing. It means nothing to the civilian world at all. And so you really need to go in and look at what the problem is, really look at it. And I mean, I'll be honest, when I applied to the University of Ottawa, I, I essentially applied the UC technique that I learned. <laughs> To, to learn about the university. So I literally just went and walked around campus. I started talking to people just like a UC does. And I started talking to the security guards and just like going like, hey man, how's it going? Can you tell me a little bit about the security on campus? And, and I started, and I actually got all the way to interviewing the assistant director of security. Like I got brought into the back office and I learned about what softwares weren't working well, I knew exactly what all the problems were. And then I had time to kind of think about, well, how would I fix this? Or who would I talk to to fix this? And so when I, I got interviewed, you know, what do you think I was telling them about? I was telling them about problems they didn't know that they had, right? And so, so that's the advice I give uh, for people. Build your network, for one. And two, when you're applying for jobs, show them how you're going to solve their problem. Don't talk about your pedigree. Nobody cares. Just really say, I can, I can solve this. I can solve this. I can solve this because I have experience. And that's all they want to hear. Make it simple, make it fast, and you're going to get it. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Um, you basically red teamed the own environment that you ended up applying for. That's exactly what I did. And that's fascinating because uh, I'm sure when they ask that question, you know, um, what do you know about University of Ottawa? you had an on the grounds perspective. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I just, I think that's awesome. Um, and, and that goes to, to say there's a lot of open source out there. Um, if you don't want to jump on, or if you can't physically get to location, there's people to talk to. I think LinkedIn is a perfect opportunity. You can connect with somebody and, and not blow the roof off by saying, Hey, I need something from you, but Hey, what's your perspective on this? What are you doing to solve or address this problem? What kind of organizational structure do you guys have? All these little things that then when you walk into an interview, to your point, you're going to be able to speak to a much greater extent than somebody who just fills out an application, shows up and thinks just by being there, 
I'm 90% of the way there. That's that's really not the case in the corporate environment, especially as you know, where there's multiple interviews, there's multiple rounds, there's the the bench of people trying to get that job is so deep uh, in most cases that you're really fighting um, like it used to be for law enforcement, where there's that one slot, you got 300 people applying. Now it's inverted. They've got 300 slots and there's five to 10 applying. So the corporate environment is still mirroring, you know, traditional law enforcement where they can be picky and choosy. So like you said, if you can walk in and, and translate your previous career into a corporate kind of language and really then communicate and connect on the problems that they're looking to solve and what things you can bring to the table, like you said, that nexus is there. Um, so I think that's wonderful. Um, and as we wrap things up today, I'd like to give you that opportunity to share with our audience, those that are listening, going, I would love to connect with this guy. Um, how can they best connect with you and have this conversation or a similar one um, as appropriate? Yeah, 100%. So anybody who wants to just chat with me, I mean, I, it'll be a pleasure for me to connect with you guys. Anybody, uh, you can you can find me on LinkedIn, of course. Uh, so I'm sure in the in the uh, podcast notes. Uh, my LinkedIn will be there. So just reach out on LinkedIn. It'll be my pleasure. If uh, you want to uh, talk about, um, you know, leadership and, and you know, all of that fun stuff, how to how to lead your team and, and that type of stuff. Um, I've, I've started a, a small little consulting on the side. So you, you can just look up teamup.ca. So it's team-up.ca. Just uh, look me up on there. It's, there's my bio on there and a little bit of what I do. And you can reach out to me through there as well. Uh, and it'll, it'll be my pleasure to, to chat with you. Um, I mean, it's such a privilege, uh, Ron, to talk to you today. Uh, thank you so, so much. Uh, thanks for the, the opportunity to connect with uh, an LAPD officer. It's uh, like I said a little bit earlier before we started. Um, what a surreal experience for me as a Canadian to connect with uh, with you, uh, an LAPD officer. It's uh, what a what a treat. Thank you so so much. Absolutely, absolutely. We'll make sure to put the the your consulting company into the show notes as well. So anybody who wants to talk leadership, wants to talk security management, how to. Uh, get the most juice out of the squeeze uh, in their role, they can certainly do that with you. And uh, it has equally been a pleasure. Um, like I said, we, uh, you know, living in the United States, we have an American perspective on a lot of things. And uh, it was fun to hear kind of your side of the border up there in Canada and how uh, things are similarly different. Like, honestly, we do things very similar. Um, we have similar problems, similar challenges, and uh, at the end of the day, we're attacking them in similar ways. So it's it's always fun to have that conversation uh, across border. Yep, 100%. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, you have a, a wonderful rest of your day. And for all of you listening, thank you for continuing to support and follow the podcast. And until next time, everybody, stay safe.